0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah
1: study. So we are beginning the study of uh, this morning, this wonderful part of our history, this moment of redemption. You can imagine the vast amounts of rabbinic literature that has been dedicated to this scene, this exact moment of our, as I said, our mythic history. Um, It is less for me always, the discussion about these narratives, it is always less for me about, is it true, than when is it true? This, like all other parts of our uh, Torah, are understood by the rabbis to be true at all times. Uh, So this didn't happen once, rather it happens... Continuously, There's this mythic moment of, of the exodus from Egypt, and there's the ways that we are brought out from Mitzrayim all the time. We are to reenact this every year, not as a story about what happened then, but remember your Haggadah, remember the language used at the Seder, which is we are to consider ourselves as if we ourselves had been slaves and had been redeemed from <laughs> slavery in Egypt. That is not and as if by the rabbis. That is for real, for real. We, every year, are to experience the exodus ourselves. We are to consider ourselves as the one who went out of Egypt in this moment, this paradigmatic moment of of liberation, of redemption. So for us, this resonates throughout every single part of Jewish history as the defining moment. It is not earned. It is a gift. It is important for me um, that the exodus, that the redemption at the sea is not earned. The only time the rabbis talk about anything being earned at the sea, it's about what Pharaoh might have earned himself and what the people following Pharaoh might have earned themselves. The people of Israel did not earn, right, liberation, redemption. It is given to them. And because it is given to them, forevermore God has a certain claim on the people Israel I was the one who took you out of Egypt right therefore and then lots of things follow from that um God has a certain claim on the people Israel and on the people Israel's behavior you may never oppress the other because you know what it was to be oppressed in the land of Egypt You must protect the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the ones at the margin, the ones who are vulnerable because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. This moment is not just about liberation and redemption and gratitude for that. It is definitive of the Jewish people forevermore. You must behave in certain ways forever because you were slaves in the land of Egypt and I brought you out. You are free, therefore, right? When our B'nai Mitzvah, like tomorrow morning, we have B'nai Mitzvah, like every Shabbat, thank God. When when I give them uh, that moment that their parents are going to present them with tzitzit, I tell everyone gathered that the tzitzit are the fringes of the free. They are the fringes, therefore, of obligation. Why? Because only free people in the ancient Near East could wear tzitzit, could wear fringes. It was your way of publicizing the fact that you were legally free only about a third of the population was legally free in the ancient near east so what's the big deal about us wearing them why do we have to wear them why does it remind us of mitzvot if it's a sign that we're free that makes no sense (laughs) if we're if we're free like what's this why are they the fringes of obligation because you're not free to do anything you want You're free, therefore, you have obligations to behave in a certain way because there's no excuse anymore. There's no Pharaoh telling you what to do. Now that you are free to make your own decisions as a people, you have obligations out of that experience, right? To treat others with justice and equity and compassion. Um, So that those fringes of freedom remind us that we are free in order to put the values of our understanding of godliness uh, at the top of what it is that gets our loyalty and our work and and struggle now, rather than Pharaoh benefiting from that that work in the world. So let us begin looking at the actual text. Many of you know this narrative well from your years of eating around a Seder table. Um, Midrashim, of course, are built into the Passover experience, right? So a lot of times Midrash and the Torah text, right, are for us as Jews, like woven together, which is not a bad thing. Um, And we're going to today just, you know, pull pull those apart just a little bit and look directly at the text. And then we'll discuss whatever Midrashim you would like to discuss uh, or that you want to share around this story. All right. So somebody want to begin reading at 17.
0: Now, when Pharaoh let the people go... God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although it was nearer. For God said, the people may have a change of heart when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people round about uh, by way of the wilderness at the Sea of Reeds. Go just a little bit more. Now the Israelites went up armed out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took with him the bones of Joseph, who had exacted an oath from the children of Israel, saying... God will be sure to take notice of you. Then you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Okay.
1: So when, remember we're at the point where Pharaoh has kicked the people out, essentially, right? After the slaying of the firstborn, Pharaoh is overcome with grief uh, and terror. And the whole people of Egypt is wailing because there's not a household in which there isn't someone dead. Um, adults, children, right? It's horrifying. You can imagine it's horrifying. Uh, and so Pharaoh essentially throws the Israelites out. Get out. Right? I've, ha- I've had it. Get out. So they go. Uh, so they're presumably heading for where? The promised land, presumably. That's where they're going, right? God has said, I'm going to take you out, and I'm going to take you to this land that I swore to your ancestors. okay. So, boom, they're heading for Canaan. They're heading for the Promised Land. So if you look at a map and you start tracing your way up from Goshen, you know, up from northern Egypt to, to uh, Canaan, ancient Canaan, then there's a pretty logical way to go, which is the superhighway, um, right, that was used by the pharaoh to go conquer everything points north. Um, all points north, the pharaoh used that superhighway, Um, to go uh, to travel, whether for war or for anything else. But this was very heavily fortified, right? So the border between Egypt uh, and Canaan would have been heavily fortified. Uh, And then you have, in later times, you have the Philistines along the shore. Um, So this is actually a reference to the reality of a later time, that the Philistines controlled the seashore. Um, but at the time of Pharaoh, it would have been heavily, heavily populated with um, garrisons or um, what, what do you call small things on the way where his soldiers would be what,
2: garrisons,
1: garrisons. What the garrisons? Um, along along the path. You know, Pharaoh would have had right, his his soldiers. So there was no way that they could have gone that way without having to confront right armed uh, other folk. So what is God's fear about that? God, of course, is omnipotent. God could take care of that battle. What's the problem? Why not go the short way?
3: It says they're scared. God was scared we'd turn back if we were confronted with having to go to war.
1: They just saw 10 plagues. They just witnessed the, you know, the devastation of the greatest empire in their world, in their known history why do they in any way why is god worried about a few garrisons
3: yes and and it says that they were well armed too um you know even with crossing the red sea with 600 chariots there were 600,000 israelite men usually with with the other numbers you know worthy were the 600 chariots um So really, maybe there were six thousand men for six hundred thousand men to fight. They could have done
1: it there too. Exactly. So, what's God's concern?
0: God's concern concern is the Israelites that they'll panic, that they won't. Even after the plagues that they just
1: saw God wreak on Egypt. Clearly, God understands that this people are still slaves. Right? They they are so flipped out. And so used to being batted around, like I think of a cat with a toy or a mouse, right? They're just so used to being beaten you know, up you know, and just kind of kicked around wherever their oppressors want to put them. Um, think of the slave mentality, right? And, and that God understands this. And right now, God seems compassionate about that. God seems fairly understanding about that, right? They're going to flip out if I take them in a situation where they're going to have to fight, or if they, if they see any war at all, they're going to freak out and they're going to want to go back to Egypt, so I'll take them a different way. I'll take them through the Midbar. I'll take them to the wilderness. Okay. God doesn't seem very upset about it yet.
4: I
5: was going to, I mean, beside the history, if I look at it the other way, to make changes in your world, it takes a long, long road. So you, you have to be expected to have those moments of doubt and coming and falling and that and that da that. Da, 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 da. So before you get to the promised land.
1: Which is, of course, the entire lesson of the book of Exodus. That's
5: right. Right. So therefore, you cannot take a shortcut.
1: Right. So And even God did not quite understand, it seems, how long it was going to take them. <laughs> right. God thinks if I just lead them the longer way, right, that's maybe two times as long. Three times as long. Even it's supposed to be a few days' journey, right? Maybe a week. It's gonna take up three weeks instead of one week. How long does it wind up taking? Forty, 40 years, years. <laughs> right? God, 40 years thinks God understands, <laughs> but doesn't yet completely get. I don't think um, how how deeply set these people are in their own narrative of suffering and powerlessness and and um, victimization they—they right? they just the consciousness of it. They are so so far behind where even I think God assesses them to be. So. And they missed <clears throat> their onions. <laughs> they missed their onions and garlic and, garlic. <laughs> and leeks. I, I heard those
4: stories <clears throat> when a kid. Right. That they missed onions. Yes. And they wanted to go back.
1: And yes. Yes, and we're going <laughs> to see the first of one of those. Uh, responses this morning. That may be a the first of many. Ruben, did you want to add something? I
2: just this foreshadows what happens later when they get to Canaan. They're still not ready. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, right. Are we ever? No. Is right? That's the question that rings for me always out from this text. Are, are are we ready yet? We've been given the gift of America, 2014. How are we doing? Mm. Saying. <laughs> right. I'm beginning
5: to think it is human condition, period.
1: That's it. Which is, of that's course, of course, is Torah is always about the human condition. Always. There's nothing in here that's not about the human condition. Which is, for me, why it's so glorious and, and continues to live um, 3,000 years later. Alright. Uh, so, the Israelites went up armed, right? So it's not like they're completely powerless. They have. Well, where'd they get the arms? Hmm. There was this moment of borrowing things from the Egyptians the jewelry and presumably, right, weapons. Um, but they were told to gird their loins the night of the Seder, right? The night of the Paschal Lamb. They were told to gird their loins. So, who knows? So the Israelites had gone up armed and Moshe took with him the bones of Yosef. Remember this when we read this? Yosef says, take my bones. with. Don't let me be buried here. Right? So it's Yosef who trusts that somehow, some way, this story of Egypt is not permanent. Their dwelling in the land of Egypt is not permanent. How does he know that? Why does he suspect that? Maybe he's been told the stories of his forefathers, right, that they've been promised a different land. Who knows? But at the time of Joseph, they're doing pretty well in Egypt. But but Joseph seems to understand this is not permanent. He's had a dream. He's maybe had a dream. Lovely. I
3: I read a, a little bit of a midrush on that because Joseph at the time could have, like his father, had his bones taken back to wherever he wanted. Then. A powerful Right. Uh, but decided not to and that there is a whole midrash about uh, Joseph's vision of the future and staying, remaining with his people knowing that they will be redeemed that we yeah. will be redeemed,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, so he, so Moshe takes with him the bones of Yosef who had exacted from the people Israel this oath about when, when God takes notice of you right, pakod is always good God taking notice of you with Pakod is good. God taking notice of you other ways is not. Um, And you shall take my bones from here with you. I think, you know, this is an interesting sentence that gets put here in the middle of all this like chaos of, right? You're kind of coming out and then they got to get going and then they got to figure out how to do without flipping the people out. And it's this absolute, you can imagine the moment of leaving Egypt is pandemonium. They're thrown out. They don't have a lot of notice, right? It's, it's just pandemonium. And in that craziness, what does Moshe do? Moshe remembers to collect the bones, the ossuary of Yosef. Right? For me, again, a really paradigmatic Jewish moment. It, no matter how crazy it gets, this commandment core that we seem to really internalize, remember. Remember your commitment, right, the promises you made to your ancestors, and you take them with you. I think of women smuggling candlesticks yeah. out of shtetls that were burning, right? I, I, you know, what it, what it was that they carried with them that was this ossuary, what the last vestige of a connection to their ancestors in the place they were, yeah. knowing that, you know, they were going to once again... Uh, be an exile a very for me touching uh, moment a very touching part of Moshe's leadership um, that he, he knows what's valuable Right. he's not plundering Egyptians for bracelets Right. he's worried about making sure he's got that ossuary
0: Joseph didn't tell Moses
1: to right. do this Moshe understands that it's a commitment made by known. B'nai Yisrael because clearly this is something that right, is known, that the B'nai Yisrael themselves as a collective are responsible, all the descendants of Israel. Moshe, for me, is the paradigmatic leader. I'm going to quit saying that word after this. <laughs> um, it's almost as bad as y'all. Um, because he's the one, right? What, you're the, the whole people are charged with, it's the leader who really understands, okay, that means me. <laughs> right, that they, they're not going to assume someone else is doing it. I think that's the def, one of the definers of of the leadership personalities, that they understand themselves as obligated personally to make sure it happens.
6: But you can imagine oral history. Sure. And the stories that are told, this is the people.
1: Yes, and, I, I think and so. that's
6: part of it. And a leader will arise and will lead us out and will take the bones and just.
1: I think so, 100%. Didn't
6: you say when you bury the
5: bones, like, like Abraham says, bury yeah. my bones, it's a claim to the land, it's a claim to the place? Mm-hmm. And he couldn't have any claim over there. Who? Uh, Joseph, even though he was, you know.
1: Presumably, he would inherit the claim of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Yeah,
5: that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> that he would inherit. Connection there,
1: he would inherit that claim mm-hmm. his people would inherit that claim and of course god has assured it will all belong to you
5: mm-hmm.
1: but but they're still
5: knowing very well the, the cave of machpelah the that they
1: right are attached to mm-hmm all right so someone read it 20
5: They set out from Sukkot and encamped at Etham at the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went before them in a pillar of cloud by day to guide them along the way, and a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel day and night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people.
1: All right. So the this before, before the people. This sense of God's concentrated, dynamic presence. Right? God's essence is somehow made visibly manifest to the people in this anan, in this cloud, this kind of mist you know, of God's kavod, God's presence among the people. Remember that this is written and told in a time where most people's understanding of a visual representation of the God would have been a visual representation, right? A, a cow, a bull, a goat uh you know whatever or a person or a person with an animal's head think egypt you know like um that that was what you visualize when you visualize the god you had to have something to visualize we're going to understand from that what happens to the people a few parashat from now in the desert when moshe has gone a little too long right um this is radical in the ancient world this is radically new stuff this idea that God is made visible only in this kind of warping of the visual field. There's no image. This is brand new in the ancient world. Unheard of. A little crazy um, that you, you don't have a description of the visual image of the God. It is a pillar of Fire or cloud, right? The sense of what is it that's ethereal that you can't really, you can't touch fire. You can't touch cloud, but you see it, right? So the idea is there's something there that's different, but it's not anything you can touch, right? Or grab or really see in terms of an image. Um, we take it for granted, but this is a very very new understanding of, of the God. And that is that it is beyond the physical. It is beyond the visible. It is almost, if you wanna say it, impossible to visualize what the Israelites understand yod heh vav to be. That is new in the world.
0: It's also interesting that the you see it not by its shape, but by its activity in time. Lovely. In other words, the way you understand it is by... This gets to process theology. <laughs> the way you oh, understand it is, is by its process of movement and what it does, not by its shape. Not by what it is. At any given moment, but by what
1: it is becoming. Yudhei that, that is the good. definition of Youh tevahe.
6: Sounds
1: like Einstein, already. right? Yeah, God says to, to Moses, "Eh when Moses says, who am I going to say sent me? What? I need to know the name of the God if I'm going to go tell these people that God sent me. I got to know your name. You have to." And God says, "What? Tell them Eh sent you. I am becoming." Mm-hmm. Eh, yes future tense. Tell them I am becoming sent you. you. Okay. Right, so, but we're not in that part, so we have a lot to do here. So we're going to stay here. Amy, focus. 14. Somebody want to read in <coughs> chapter 14.
2: I said to Moses Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp before Pi Hariroth, between Migdol and the sea, before Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they are a in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. Then I will stiffen Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them that I may gain glory through Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Adonai.
1: Okay, lovely, Margo. Um So we often don't dig in here. So I just want to dig in for one second to give you like the real sense that the people are moving in a direction. A lot of people, right? The mythic moment, the mythic understanding of this is that a lot of people are moving towards this journey in the wilderness, right? Towards Canaan. When Pharaoh, right, is having his kind of stuff go on kind of recovering from having you know, this terrible experience of the death of the firstborn, has, has sent the Hebrews out. Pharaoh's having a moment of kind of coming to, <laughs> to what's happened. And in that moment, God seems to understand things are about to change on the ground. He's having remorse. Pharaoh's having remorse. So God seems to, we haven't heard that yet, but God seems to know something's up because God says, Tell the Israelites to turn back. Why? Yeah. Why turn back? Like, what's that about, right? So, clearly, God, something has shifted. God turns the people around. Now, imagine what that feels like to the people. Like, excuse me? Six, 600,000, even if it's, you know, 500 people. you get. got... A big group of people moving in one direction who are a little panicked, who are spooked, who are slaves, who don't know how to make a decision for themselves, certainly are not an army, certainly are not trained, and they're moving. And now you tell them, wait, stop, turn around and go camp back that way. What? So it seems to make no sense until we read that Pharaoh will say they are, and I don't like this translation, mine says, astray. Right? Yeah. I don't like that translation. Um <speaking> that Pharaoh will say, um, Yisrael, Israel Nevukim <speaking> Haim. He'll say about them, they're 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 confused. They're they're lost, they're disoriented, they don't know where they are, they don't know what they're doing, they're wandering around. Shut in. How are they shut in? How are they trapped? Because they've got the sea, they've got the wilderness, and then they have the border garrisons. They are, if they turn around and come back and stop, Pharaoh will perceive them as being stuck. Sitting ducks. It's a trap for Pharaoh. Yeah, because ostensibly
0: Pharaoh doesn't know that God's planning all of this.
1: Correct. Ostensibly. <laughs> that he's
0: led them there.
1: So, Because otherwise this doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But God is saying, turn around and go sit down. You're going to be bait. <laughs> God is baiting the trap, knowing Pharaoh will not be able to resist. Right? They have pulled one over on him. And now he hears they're sitting there because they, they can't proceed. They got the ocean. They got his arm. They got the, the, the border guards. And then they've got the wilderness. They're stuck. What will he do? God seems to be pretty sure what Pharaoh's going to do is attack. You're one of these Israelites who's just been told to turn around and go camp. What do you think about that plan? Not very good. Not very good. But interestingly... What are we told? They did it. They were slave mentality. They were slave mentality. They followed orders.
4: And they were tired of marching.
1: Maybe they they were tired of of schlepping and the stress of fleeing. They what? They wanted some of that matzah (laughs) that they were smelling baking on the planks on their shoulders. Sure. Um, (laughs) With a little maror. um, right, so they did it. All right, verse five. So, we to assume they didn't because they
2: had faith?
1: Margot, that would be a fantastically Jewish reading of this, right? To say they had—this is a very rabbinic reading—they had faith that God would fight for them. That would be the optimistic reading the realistic reading sarah moskowitz can give us is uh, they're tired they're exhausted they're slaves they okay <laughs> we'll sit you know okay we'll make camp whatever like they they, they are just they're just lost they're just stunned i kind of think of them as stunned at this moment they post-traumatic, post-traumatic shock they are they're completely flipped out they have no idea what end is up so they just follow the leader, right? You take any, any social animal that lives in a pack and give it a strong alpha, and every dog in the pack relaxes. As long as there's an alpha, right, they relax. That seems to be where they are at this moment is somebody's stepping up. I mean, it doesn't always hold true. They're going to they're gonna round on that alpha later, aren't they? Um, when they feel insecure. But right now, it's like, okay, somebody knows what's going on, somebody's taking charge, okay. And they, and they do it. All right. So, verse 5. When the, king,
4: when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his courtiers had a change of heart about the people and said, What is this that we have done, releasing Israel from our service? He ordered his chariot and took his force with him. He took 600 of his picked chariots and the rest of the chariots of Egypt with offices in all of them. Adonai stiffened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he gave chase to the Israelites. As the Israelites were departing defiantly, the Egyptians gave chase to them. And all the chariot horses of Pharaoh, his riders and his warriors, overtook <coughs> them and camped by the sea near Pari P.
1: before Baal Ziflan. All right, so um, it was told to the king of Egypt, right, that the people had fled. levav par'ov avadav el And their hearts flipped over, right? They completely flipped around about the people. And now comes this wonderful line that Aviva Zornberg riffs on in this amazing way that only she can. Um, this line "Mazot asinu, what is this we have done?" And she calls ma this question what she she has pages and pages on this word that she believes is the ultimate challenge right of you know, what is this that you've done as a nation? You've, you've let the Israelites go. I will give you her discussion of that word here before you leave today. Um, it's the only page of Aviva Zornberg that I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a packet. Um, her page is on this very word. Uh, it, from the previous page, it got cut off a little bit. Has released the Israelites from Egypt. Pharaoh and his subjects realize that what they have lost. So when you read that you go, excuse me, we're starting in the middle of a sentence, it's about this, it's about ma, right? And then she's going to give you a midrash, um, <clears throat> what you know, is this that we've done? <clears throat> and then you'll, you'll read what she has to say, it's fantastic. But this this moment of, right, that, that Pharaoh gets it, that like something's happened, that it's like, "Why?" says the midrash, "Why?" Vay, right? I vay. Like, what have I? What have I done? Okay. So he knows what he, he realizes. What he's lost. He's not just lost slave labor. That is not the point. For you know the, the literature, the rabbinic literature, all of the midrash. You know, the the exploration is about the relationship. Interestingly enough, between Pharaoh and God. Pharaoh's lost a relationship to Yudhei Vavhei. He was a big guy when he was the enemy of Yudhe When they were doing battle, Pharaoh was the big guy, right? Now, Pharaoh's nothing. And it's this moment that is so brilliant that the rabbis play on that that's what Pharaoh's upset about. He's lost being the star of the neighborhood. God's no longer in dialogue with Pharaoh, God's gone. And it's like, what? I'm not important anymore you're not fighting with me I'm not important anymore I'm nothing and that this is what terrifies Pharaoh and makes him regret what he's done and he goes to get the people back
3: and you you can imagine that here's the ancient world superpower right this little slave people and their unseen slave god god of the slave has beat them and Pharaoh's alive still to see it What that does to his ego and also just embarrassment and his viability as a leader has been shattered.
1: So what she, so Aviva Zorenberg goes to this point when she says, after this moment, the effect is to move beyond the world of facile rationalizations to become aware of incongruities, gaps between the public narrative and the inner debate. The public narrative is we are the most important, powerful empire ever in the history of the universe. Ma, this moment of ma is this identifying of the gap between the public narrative and the reality. Think of when we went through shock and awe and then didn't kick the butts of the enemy. We had to do a serious ma, ze asinu. What is this we have done? Right? The greatest superpower in the history of the universe goes in and can't deal with a bunch of insurgents? It was a huge you know, identification of a serious gap between our self-understanding, the public American narrative, and the reality. As one, as one example, there are many, but uh, so the first one that came to mind. Um, so in this sense, the peoples, which we're going to see in a minute, they also use this word, right? Is this, um, it's a necessary truthfulness, a way of opening a new depth of dialogue. This is because there's now going to be a defining moment for Pharaoh. Once he recognizes that ma, that gap, he's now going to act in a way that's definitive for him, right? And, and his people. All right to be God also? Who? The Egyptians. A hundred percent. Right, That's
6: so right. he's, is he, still, is he still a God, but he just got beat by another God? Or <laughs> is he just not God
1: anymore? Well, so part of that is always the, the digestion of what just happened for any people in the ancient world, you know, that is engaged in war. Is that your God beat up my God? And so what does that mean? Usually it means you convert to my God that's usually how it goes because usually the people aren't running away right usually when there's a battle it's because (coughs) my god and your guy god get into it we win which means we take you as slaves and kill you and now you worship our god Mm -hmm. right um this is a little different in that yore vav beat pharaoh by getting the people out (laughs) right so what does that mean now what is pharaoh gonna do but you're right so pharaoh is like this is this is what like I, Aviva Zorenberg identifies. Very this moment of maze asinu is, what? Yes. Wait a minute, <laughs> I'm a guy, right, this, We can't have it that Yudeh Bavé just beat me up or ISIS or Ra or, it, what? No, right? We gotta go prove the, the public narrative is true. We gotta go prove we are still supreme that our god is still supreme that pharaoh is still supreme 100% very nice that's this is all wrapped up for Aviva Zora Morgan this two letter word ma what has ha- what just happened okay it is the, it takes- what
5: happened in our consciousness that the the, the the battle our inner battle between the pharaoh and us and-
1: which I'm going to give you, uh, from Larry Kushner, the other thing I'm giving you. Uh, today is Larry C- Lawrence Kushner, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner's reading of this. Um, I'll just read you the first line. Reconsider the going out from Egypt, not as an historical event or even a mythic one, but as the story of the transformation of consciousness. Yes. Okay. All right, so let's.
0: um I have a question about the size of the Pharaoh's army here. Yes. It says 600 chariots, his elite. There were 600,000 Israelites, supposedly. Mm -hmm. And then all the chariots of Egypt. Right. I don't know how many that could be. A lot. lot. But still, we tend to think of small Israelites and
1: lots of Egyptians. It looks like it was the reverse. So the the chariot, which was a new weapon Mm -hmm. in the world, um, which was imported from Canaan, by the way. Um, So think of tanks, right? It doesn't matter how many people you have. If you have tanks, or or even better, think of a a plane that's Mm -hmm. bombing. However many people you have, you mow them down. And so the chariots were used against cavalry, Right, used against foot soldiers, or in this case, regular civilians, um, to essentially just cut them down. You oh, just yeah, mowed, place. you just, 600 chariots would just mow through. And, and that's his elite charioteers. Then you have the regular <laughs> Schleniel chariots, close. and then, you know, then you have presumably... The rest of the Egyptian army, right? You know, but those chariots are there to just cut, mow the people down. But he he committed everything to this battle. Oh, he went all out, hundred percent. All right, so he's he's racing out after the people with everything he's got. And what does God do at this point? And God strengthens the heart of the king of Egypt, who gave chase to the Israelites. There, we could have a whole two-hour class on the stiffening of the heart of Pharaoh. We're not going to. Um, and he goes after them, right? And the warriors overtook them is what my English says. It's not it's, – we, we misunderstand that in this case in uh, English. Um, it's not overtook them, meaning they're on top of them. Overtook them means that they, they were in visual distance right that the Israelites could see the Egyptians the, Is, the Egyptians could see the Israelite camp that's what overtakes them means that they're close enough to identify there they are so dun, dun, dun,
4: dun,
1: right you know the Egyptians come thundering with their tanks and their warplanes, and they see the people camped right so that's where we end that paragraph of Torah what happens next verse 10
7: Called, cried out to Adonai, and they said to Moses, Was it for want of graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the wilderness? And what have you done to us, taking us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us be, and we will serve the Egyptians, for it is better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Have no fear, stand by and witness the deliverance which Adonai will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, will never see, we, you will never see again. Adonai will battle for you
1: and <coughs> hold your peace. All right, this is a fantastic scene, one of my favorite scenes in Torah, and the scene and the paragraph that comes next, fantastic. This is it doesn't get better than this. So Pharaoh and his army are drawing near. The Israelites catch sight of the Egyptians advancing upon them. They cry out to God, and then what do they do to Moshe? They turn on Moshe. Yeah, it's a very Jewish thing. Very Jewish. <laughs> right? Just <laughs> the whole way it's presented. Right? This is it. This is where it starts. Our, our self understanding is right here. They turn on Moses and say, Was it for want of graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? So this very stinging irony of what was Egypt known for? What was their religion known for? Preserving bodies. The death cult. Yeah, yeah. Egypt is the death-obsessed religion, right? We preserve the dead body, and then it's all about the afterlife and death and worshiping the dead ancestors. and right, It's all about death, 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 death. Mot was one of the biggest gods of Egypt. Death. Right? So in this death-obsessed culture, what do the people turn on Moshe to say? We could have died there. (laughs) (laughs) Right? There was was plenty of death. There was plenty of stuff going on about death back there. You took us out to die here? We didn't even have to walk. Uh, Right? (laughs) Right? So this... You know, imagine Moshe, right? Like, you know, like Moshe has saved, you know, has been the agent of God's salvation of these people from this death-obsessed place where they were tortured and oppressed and whatever. And they're like, we could have died there. What have you done to us? Taking us out of Egypt. Is this not the very thing we told you? We told you in Egypt, leave us alone. We'll serve the Egyptians. It's better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. When did they say that? Where did they say that? We have no record. No record of that conversation. <laughs> no record of that conversation. We just know that they said that. Right, right? So, either, right, they're like, We told you, and it's like not exactly how I remember what you said, right? Like, right? Always after afterwards. See, I told you this, right? So, or maybe they were whining already in Egypt and saying, like, no, leave us alone, don't rock the boat. We're we're going to serve Egypt. We don't know. Either there's a tradition that's lost. Or in this moment, the people are very creative about their memory, about what they said to Moshe when they were in Egypt, which is both are very human right, reactions, that a slave is going to say, no, I don't want to rock the boat, because that's how they're oriented to the world now, as victims, as powerless, as you know, you, you don't rock the boat because it only makes things worse. Um, or like human beings are wont to do, they remember things a little differently uh, now that they're in in crisis. Margo?
2: Yes, I was going to say, are there other translations of this particular area that don't have, and I'm not sure if it isn't our rabbi's uh, interpretation and presentation, and it's wonderful and we'll listening to it, that don't have this little edge of uh, humor in here? I mean, did you bring us out here?
7: Uh, so
1: we could die it, it it's I mean, great margo explain. it's a great question um, it, it's it, that is literally the hebrew mm-hmm. that that, that it's literal question. right is that they say literally right why why from Mitzrayim lachtanu did you take us lamut bamidbar to die in the desert mazot asita what is this you have done The same ma ze asinu. What did Pharaoh just say? What is this we have done? What does the people Israel say? Same exact formula but to Moshe. Not what have we done following this guy? Do they take any responsibility? Zero. Ma ze asita. What is this you have done? Once. For them, the gap between the public narrative and the reality sets in. They, too, start with mazotasita. What is this you have done? But do not say asinu." What is this we have done? Now, maybe Pharaoh's using the royal we, whatever, but seems to be talking to his courtiers, um, right? But they are very clear. They put this squarely on Moshe, right? One of their serious challenges that they never recover from. That's why this generation ultimately has to die in the desert. Um, but, but, but Margo, your question's a good one. I, if we read it without the humor that I put in, um, and we just read them as panicked and angry and rounding on Moses because they're terrified and they're furious, they feel betrayed, still there's an irony in the Hebrew of, was it for want of graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to murder us? right so even if it's angry and no humor in it the irony of of the death obsession in egypt and they use that now to talk about they're gonna die in the desert it's not lost on moses it's even crueler than humor Do, do you know what i mean it's a deep irony how deep their mistrust instantly becomes right it I imagine it being so painful for Moses and God in this moment. They are so, not only ungrateful, right, but they, they twist everything around in a way that's just, like, awful, right? You know,
3: very, very rude. Very <laughs> rude. God, <I> just, <laughs> right, right? <laughs> they could have just
1: said, have just we're, just said, we're scared, help, right, instead, right? They use this very yeah. cutting, cutting purposeful. Or Think of a teenager who knows exactly where you hurt <laughs> and uses it, right? I mean, you know, exactly where you feel a little weak or self-conscious or, you know, or whatever, you know, like exactly where they know it's going to really get you and that's where they go when they're mad or they want to, you know, lash out at you and that, that's what they're doing. They're cutting at, at exactly that place. I
7: was just curious if maybe some of this, other than the fact that Feel feel probably fairly precarious. He was an Egyptian prince, and maybe they don't quite trust him mm-hmm. because of that.
1: I'm just mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think I think all of those levels stay present mm-hmm. in a way that we rarely explore. I think you're absolutely right. Um, and in my fantasy about the historical story underlying whatever we have now, um, in my fantasy, he is an Egyptian prince. He's not a Hebrew. He is a follower of Akhenaten or you know like one, you, know, you know that story of the pharaoh that was monotheistic and gets chased out and then his statues get destroyed because that was heresy and the other cults didn't like that this idea of one god but it was there. The instinct was there in Egypt and it was a prince of Egypt who instituted mono, that monotheistic temporary momentary National religion for Egypt, and in my fantasy, that's Moshe. Yeah,
7: I, I have read some, you know, archaeological. Well, you know, it's possible. Was it just there already, or is
1: mm-hmm. it, you know, racial memory? Mm-hmm. It if you read Karen Armstrong, her book *The Axial Age*, she says the world was ready for monotheism. It wasn't just the Hebrews; the the world was ready. That's why we see in this, you know, period. In Egypt, Akhenaten, you know, we see here and here and here and all of a sudden, you know, like that, that monotheism starts to catch on, right? That the world was ready. Humanity was ready for a different understanding. Um, and so it would make perfect sense to me as a cultural anthropologist, right? It would make perfect sense to me that, that there was that going on in those civilizations that had a lot of contact with each other. That of course, it's not going to happen just in one place, of course it propped up in Egypt and in Canaan and it right it just kind of the, in, the impulse is there it's our people that took it and ran with it um for lots of reasons the Egyptians weren't going to go there there was too much riding on on you know the polytheistic system um but, but to your point I always I always fantasize that Moses is an Egyptian prince and and so but to your point I love that. that you know, so the people maybe at some point go, you know what? Isn't this convenient? This prince of Egypt brings us out here telling us we're going to be free, and now here comes Pharaoh. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Really?
5: Well, it's also the predator in us also is always the one who tries to defy us all the time whenever we want to make change. And it's the same thing in society. When you want to make change, the predator will find every bit of way to convince
1: you it's the wrong thing to do. And Rabbi Larry Kushner says in this piece I'm going to give you that there are four stages to change. And one of them is the second confrontation with resistance. Mm-hmm. Right? The first is, okay, I'm going to overcome my desire for nicotine. I'm going to do this. I'm going to fight the beast. Right. I'm going to quit. Right. And then before there's part, real change, there has to be, Okay, I quit, and now there has to be a second confrontation with the beast. There has to be, you know, for me to—I have to confront it again before I'm really going to now be able to overcome it. And, and that this is that moment for the Israelites, right? That they're confronting—they thought they'd never see Pharaoh again, and what happens? They, they are confronting Pharaoh and his army once again, the resistor in us that doesn't want change. Whether we
5: want to do something good or bad. Or that's right.
1: That's right. And that will scare and us and to death. Do it.
5: You, you know you
1: cannot do it. You can't do it. And and when you fail, it's going to be so much worse than right now. If you risk this, when you when not if when you fail, mm-hmm. it's going to really stink. Right. And and that's they and here we go. All right. So what happens? Dun, 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 dun all right oh Oh, this is fantastic so so they are flipping out right and they have just rounded on moses moses in this incredible moment of self-restraint and compassion and understanding says what have no fear it's all right i know you're scared Someone rounds on you and says, really, Amy? Great decision. Now the synagogue is going to lose $16,000. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Right? Who has the ability to stand still, take a deep breath, and say, okay, I know you're scared. This is going to be okay. I'm going to make us $36,000. Right? So wait. Right, when you're rounded on as the leader, right, your, your, your instinct is to say, excuse me? Do you understand for Moshe to say, do you understand what I've sacrificed for you? Right? But he is truly the leader in this moment and says to them, he doesn't respond to what they said. He doesn't respond to their accusation. He responds to the teenager out of deep and abiding love, trusting that they're going to grow up into a sane human being at some day and says to them, I know you're scared. It's going to be okay. Right? Doesn't, doesn't react to what they said. Responds to what he knows is happening for them. So he He answers what's really going on, which is that they're afraid. So he says, don't be afraid. Stand by and witness the deliverance which God will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see right now, right over there, you will never see again. God will battle for you. You hang in there. Right? Just just hang tight. Right? Right? Um, but a little more powerfully, right? So there's beautiful midrash written about that, beautiful, beautiful literature written about this moment and about this response. One that I love is that there were four different ways people started responding. They started flipping out and panicking. To those people, Moshe says, have no fear. Don't be afraid. The folks who wanted to just immediately start acting without thinking, having no idea what they were doing, They're, they just need to do something. Don't you know people who the minute they get afraid, they need to do something, whether it's the right thing to do or thoughtful or thought through, they just need to do something. What does he say? Stand by. Hang on. Don't do anything yet, right? And, and witness, right, that God will deliver you. You don't need to do anything right now. Just, just stay there. For the Egyptians who you see today, you will never see again. And there are some who want to fight, right? Who want to immediately take up arms and turn around and fight. And to him and to them, Moshe says, "God will battle for you." Right? Some want to—I um, forget what the other one was. I guess jump into the water or whatever. And Moshe says, "Stop! Just hang tight." And so that you know that this—this this is not just one. Speech It's Moshe responding specifically to each group and how each group was responding to their existential terror. Another way the rabbis explore the gift of leadership. This is definitely
6: one of his best
1: moments. Definitely one of his best moments for the rabbis. This is the way they talk about leadership. You can't say just one thing to everybody. You need Even if everybody's feeling the same emotion, which is, let's say, fear and the panic, right? A true leader doesn't just say, okay, calm down. A true leader, this is their midrash, is that the true leader looks at each way groups of people panic, different personality types panic, and figures out a way to speak to each one of those different personality types. That is is gifted leadership being able to talk to each group where they are when they're at their absolute worst and knowing exactly what to say. What does God respond? Fantastic. Yeah, really then read it, Linda, read it. <laughs> <laughs>
6: I just can't, I feel so bad for Moses right now. <laughs> <laughs> then Adonai said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward.
1: What is that? Go, yeah, go on, and hey, we're going to go there.
6: And you lift up your rod and... And you lift up your rod and hold out your arm over the sea and split it so that the Israelites may march into the sea on dry ground. And I will stiffen the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his warriors, his chariots, and his riders. Let the Egyptians know that I am Adonai when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his
1: riders. Okay. So here we have... Mo, the people are crying out to God. Moshe is telling them, don't panic. It's okay. God is going to deliver you. Watch what God's going to do. You will never have to deal with these Egyptians again. And then God speaks to Moshe and says, what? Ma. Uh-huh. Here we get the third ma. Everybody's ma. Ma. Everybody's ma. Right? These are right eternal moments of ma for us. So now the people have done it. Right? Yeah. Pharaoh's done it, and now God is doing it. What is this? You're crying out to me. Did Moshe cry out to God?
6: No. You should be saying, Good job, Moses.
1: <laughs> so Linda's like, Poor Moses. He, he's talking to the people. He's
6: like the worst example of middle management. Because <laughs> he can't win. He
1: cannot win. Right. So poor Moshe. So Melinda's saying, poor Moshe. He's trying to comfort the people. He's talking about how great God is and how God is going to defend them and take care of them and beat up the Egyptians. And God turns to Moshe and says, what is this business that you're calling out to me? Tell the Israelites to move forward. So for the rabbis. They just, they just read a huge chasm right here, right? <laughs> into which that chasm is filled with so many amazing interpretations. It's just beyond wonderful. So one of them, do you remember? What are the rabbis? Who do the rabbis attribute with going into the sea first? Nachshon ben Aminadab. One of the most famous midrashim we have. Is at this moment, the people are flipping out. Moshe's trying to keep them calm. And meanwhile, one Israelite, Right, Nachshon Ben Aminadav walks into the water. Right, so there's many ways that the story gets told. One is that all the tribes are arguing who's going to get to go first into the water. Right, Reuven, I'm the oldest. This one know, but I did that. Right, so which tribe is going to get to go in first? In that same midrash in the Talmud, I love this. In that same midrash, here's two lines about each each tribe is arguing who's going to go first. Mm-hmm. Next line of the midrash. Each tribe was arguing about they don't want to go first.
6: <laughs>
1: each tribe is actually arguing, I don't want to go, you go. Yeah. No, you, she's, she's the oldest, make her, her go. She's the bravest, make her, her go. Right. So in the same Midrash, two sentences apart is everyone's arguing who gets to go first. And no, the argument is who has to go first. I don't want to go first. So anyway, so the two versions of the Midrash are right there together. But they, but they both end the same way, which is during this arguing. Nachshon Ben Aminadav walks into the water, and it is when the waters, um, right, close off his airways. That's the moment that the, the miracle is affected. That the that the waters part. So, so. One midrash is that God is answering Moshe because Nachshon is drowning. <laughs> So God says to Moshe, excuse me, Nachshon is in the water drowning. Stop talking. Quit quit talking to me or about me or whatever and raise your arms. He's going to drown. Another uh, Midrash is that actually Moshe turns and prays to God at this moment. The people are flipping out. He says to them, hang on. God is going to act on your behalf. And then Moshe turns to God and starts davening. The rabbis have Moshe davening, oh, yeah. right? And merciful one, help your people. And, and he's, he's going into this very lengthy davening. And God says, Moshe, there's a time for long prayer. And there's a time for short prayer and action. This would be the time for action. Stop praying. Which, think about it. That midrash is written by whom? Rabbis. Who do what? Pray. pray. All day long. All day long. <laughs> That's all they do. They pray or study. When they study, right, they are, they're studying all day long. And what do they have God say? Quit praying. Go do something. That is radical, right? right? We tend too often to see the rabbis as monolithic, right, and and as kind of out of touch. That that's a self-critical midrash, isn't it? About what the human tendency read the rabbis. What our tendency is to do is to pray. And then, not, and then not do anything. How amazing. How insightful of the rabbis that they understood this. Right? The other that I love is that God is saying to Moshe, tell the people to move forward. Right? Tell me about this moment. They're flipping out. Pharaoh's back there with a bunch of tanks. Right? The people are freaking out. And God says to Moshe, what? Walk into the water. Tell the people to move forward. What does that look like? Suicide. Suicide. What? Why doesn't it say, hold your arms up, hold your rod up, let me part the waters so that the people can go forward? What is wrong? This is wrong order. Tell them to move forward. What? They're, they're going to move forward into water? Really? I don't know how to swim. I don't know how to swim. I've got kids. I've got gold bracelets. They're heavy. Like a, what? Why? Why? For the rabbis, this is critical. This order is critical. Linda, God, in this moment, for this midrash, mm-hmm. is being compassionate. Because God, what is God saying? Why, if it's in this order on purpose, what is God saying to Moshe here?
4: You can trust that if you do this, I will
1: back you up. Why not just open the water and then have them move? Because, Why does it have to be in this order? Uh,
4: for God, the trust should come first.
1: For God, the trust in this teaching, in this Midrash, has to come first. God is saying to Moshe, they have to move forward or I can't do anything. If they don't walk and move towards redemption, I can't do anything. I'm completely powerless, stuck up here in my heaven. They are my agents in the world. I only act through the world through them. They have to have emunah. They have to have faith. They have to take some movement, some personal action towards proof of emunah or the miracle cannot happen. It is only when we are ready to walk into the sea that the path can open. There's no other way. That is just how the universe is put together, says this brilliant mystical Tradition about this moment. This is not just just eloquent. This is not just crazy. This is how the world works. Tell them to move forward, and then put your arms up, and I'll back you up. But I can't do it without them. Rami Shapiro, Rabbi Rami Shapiro, has a beautiful explanation of why this is written the way it is. What is the Kabbalistic teaching? What is the mystical always true for every moment? Teaching about this. Why do you cry out to me? Right? What, what is this business crying out to me? Right? So already reorienting to you got to do it. Right? Please help us. God reorients Moshe. What is this calling out to me? Deber El Bnei Yisrael. Speak to the people Israel. Don't command. Don't yell. Don't shame. Speak to them. Talk to them, right? That every single letter, every single word of how this is phrased is a deep teaching for leadership, for spiritual leadership, for leadership in our own transformation, our own liberation, our own redemption. Speak to them. Don't boss them. Don't threaten them. Don't tell them you have to. Don't tell them if you loved me, you would. Just talk to them. Vayisau, talk to B'nai Yisrael. Vayisau, and the actual Hebrew here is, um, it's not tell them. It's you know, speak to them and let them move forward. Don't drag them, don't nag them, don't beat them from behind, don't scare them into it. Right, speak to them and let them move forward. Let them move. It's a very different way of understanding than tell them to go, right, is just talk to them and then let them move. Get out of the way. You can speak. You can offer what you have to offer. Then you have to get out of the way and let them move. Then you will do what you need to do which is raising his his staff so that the waters part. The rabbis, how do we know, say the rabbis, that they had to move into the water before it parted? How do we know move forward is here on purpose? Because it says, and the people moved into what? They moved, oh, we haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> uh, did we? Um, yes, we did, yes, we did, yes, we did. Um, And so the people came into the yam. What's the yam? The sea, the water, on dry ground. How can that be? Is it yam or is it yabasha? Is it sea or is it dry ground? If it's split, then there's dry ground. Dry ground. I mean it's you know it's it's solid ground. It's not dry, obviously, it's monkey, but it but it's it's ground. Yes? Or did they go into the yam? Did they go into the sea? And this is where the rabbis say Torah never, God forbid, wastes a word or has it in the wrong place, God forbid. It's teaching that we know. Here it is, here's the proof. They walked into the Yam, and then walked on Yabasha. The yam is- the sea. So they had to move into the sea before there was proof. Before there was evidence of a miracle, they had to move into the yum thinking they would surely die. We have to move into what we are sure is going to kill us before the path can open. They have to trust, as Sarah says so beautifully. They had to have enough emunah that a way through was there that they couldn't yet see that they moved forward into the yam. That is what allows for Yabasha, That is what allows for the miracle.
7: I also hear that often when someone is not judgmental and allows people to have free will, they will do what's right
1: the Moshe had to get out of their way and let them make that decision and let them do it exactly that the miracle doesn't work if they don't make that decision Moshe could want it God could want it but the people had to move into the yom before the miracle can be effected, before there's an opening for me this is the point of the Hanukkah story They needed eight days of oil for the festival. They had how many jars of oil? How long would the jar last? Why didn't they wait? Right? Why didn't they wait? It only, it takes seven days to purify more oil. So wait seven days and you'll have eight cruises of oil. Duh. Right? But they didn't. Because the story of Hanukkah is this story. You have to act as if out of emunah. You have to act in faith that something will happen that you don't yet see any evidence of. And it is that action that opens up the possibility in the universe of the miraculous and of the new, and of the new path until we move forward, until we light that one cruise. Right? I have
6: a question about just, it's so interesting to me that it's all the night that the it, it seems as though
1: they actually were. This took a long time. <laughs> right, this so, took a long time. I think it's
6: like an action scene where it's like <laughs> you know God says it and then they rush into. You the saw Cecil B. DeMille, like, DeMille honey, so we right, all right. are carrying
1: around Cecil B. DeMille, right? right? We all are affected by this mo- notion of like, and boom, it's done, right? It is when we really look at the text. Right, they're standing there, and it takes all night long for the
6: just this process, just this
1: process of it opening, and Pharaoh's not going anywhere.
6: Right, the angels standing there, (laughs) his wheels are clogged, and they're all just waiting there.
1: What? What is? I love, I love your close reading, Linda. What? What is the word in Hebrew? Do you think they use for clogged? Oh, I
6: think he says at some point that he, it may be later.
1: And I will make Pharaoh's chariots. What? He kavti. I will make it caveid. I will make it heavy. What is, this? what is the word that comes out of kavad, that comes out of heavy, that we just Kavod. talked about? Kavod. Honor. Presence. Glory. God's glory. God's presence. That is gorgeous. What is going to happen? God's glory is going to be made manifest in the cloud and the fire. God's concentrated heaviness, God's essence is right there. And that is a good thing for the folks who are on that side. When we're on the other side, that same reality does what? Sucks us down into the mud in great heaviness so we are unable to move. Your choice. Your choice, humanity, always. You can draw on God's kabod and the miraculous will open up. Or you can stay with anger and violence and retribution and fear and the same reality, the same exact reality becomes kaved, becomes your heaviness sticking your wheels in the mud. Up to you. It's funny that the word kaveh
4: now means liver. <laughs> Soft liver is But mm-hmm. well, That's where the anger
1: settled. <laughs> there you go. Liver. Right? The liver is very dense. <coughs> right? It's very dense. <coughs>
5: All right. Rabbi. Hmm?
1: Yes, have, ma'am.
4: Do you have any teaching to take out of this... Problem of trust and faith that would have worked during the Holocaust mm-hmm. because as I listen and think about it, what comes to me is an image of the Radzina rabbi on a truck being taken to the trains and telling people to pray and have faith. And
1: what happened yeah um i think that that question fueled many 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 people's abandonment of faith and gave rise also to another kind of expression of faith so personally I cannot have a God who intervened at the sea and did not intervene in Nazi Germany. I, I can't. So for me, this moment has to be a mythic moment. It has to be about something else other than bodily, physical deliverance from the enemy. Or this story means nothing to me. Does that make sense? If, if I read this as history, I'm done. I have nothing to say to this God if this is history, because where was God at Treblinka? Where was God at Auschwitz? Where was God in the killing fields? Where was God in Sudan? Where was God in Rwanda? Right? I have nothing to say to the historical God if this is true. I have a lot to explore as a human being dealing with the ultimate as we all are. I have a lot to explore around the question of where is my Emunah and how does it help me to live differently? So the teacher who was offered an escape out of Nazi-occupied Europe who chose to go to the gas chambers with his students, for me, that is Emunah, right? That he had complete faith and trust in the goodness of the teacher-student bond. That was the last thing he could give those children was a death without panic, was the presence of safety for them. It wasn't about bodily deliverance, right? It was about emunah at a different level. So for me, it has to be about exploring when we are given ultimate moments, what is our way through? For him, that was walking through the sea on dry ground. I have to stay there, that's all I can do. Thank you. Um, And and I'm more and less successful, honestly, at at being there, right? There are days where I'm as despairing as Moshe. And I don't mean to say I'm the leader of the... I'm, you know, just kind of going, really? Like, what? What? Or the people. Actually, I'm the people most of the time. <laughs> like, really? <clears throat> this, is, this is what we get? Right? How many asked in Nazi Germany and, and all of, you know, that horror. How many of them said, really? We're the chosen people? Was there a lack of graves somewhere else that you brought us to the Nazis? Really? I mean, I mean, I think that is as much a response, right, as anything else, and it's probably the most common response. Many, so many, as you know, left entirely, said, I want nothing to do with this anymore, any of this. Because that's, that's the response. You brought us out here to die? Really? Thank you. To somebody else. I'm done. It was the very, very, very few who had the ability to move forward anyway, right? And stay in some kind of relationship um, to the ultimate, to, to what they would call God.
0: You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from at Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.